go from Ephesus to Laodicea, they give the era of the church over church history. And so this, if that is true, which I'm, I'm not real keen on that because um, I think we have corruption and compromise and all kinds of other, you know, deadness and such that goes on in our churches today, not just in a period that was hundreds of years ago. But anyway, if that is actually a true statement that these the era, then this is the era of Laodicea, right? So, if you like that one, hold on to that. If not, then you can just ignore it. That's not on your outline, which is in your bulletin, but we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. I'll start with a story. At the base of Victoria Falls is the Zambezi River. This is in Zimbabwe, Africa. In case uh, Victoria Falls, that's, you know, like Mount Kilimanjaro and all that. Anyway, the Zambezi River has whitewater rapids that can occasionally exceed Class 7. Now, I thought 5 was the highest, but they evidently, this because this is, you know, a huge waterfall that's famous, um, they can get all the way up, maybe after a big rainstorm or something, Class 7, which is just unimaginable. A traveler writes this. He says, I, I sat on the edge of my eight-person raft, all suited up in an overstuffed life preserver. We have to have a lot of stuffing to stay above all that kind of rapids. And a thick crash helmet. And I thought to myself, the Zambezi River can't be that dangerous, can it? Then our guide said, when the raft flips, <laughs> not, oh, it, get, it, get, it gets worse. If, not if the, the raft flips or on the off chance that we turn over, but when the raft flips, stay in the rough water. You will be tempted to swim toward the stagnant water at the edge of the banks. Don't do it because it's in the stagnant water that the crocodiles wait for you. (laughs) They are large and hungry, and when the raft flips, stay in the rough water. And if you're here, feet first, by the way. So God often keeps his people in the white water. Do you ever notice that? Do you ever feel like you're in the white water? And why is because we learn to trust him in the midst of challenges. So the theme today of the lukewarm church, or if you have on your outline the self-sufficient church, either will work. Stagnation is difficult and dangerous for our spiritual life. So let me ask you a question that I've asked before. Are we willing to live where life may be challenging or uncertain? The church at Laodicea was wealthy, just like the Western church, and very self-sufficient. Not many challenges that we see listed in there. They had moved into the stagnant water, trusting themselves more than trusting in God. So Laodicea, we've been going clockwise, so we're on our last one. We're at the very bottom of the map, not too far from the ocean. Uh, The faithful church of Philadelphia, as you see, is up to to the right of Laodicea. But it was an important and wealthy trade and banking center on the Roman road. Remember that, important trade and banking center, lots of money. When an earthquake destroyed Laodicea in 60 AD, Philadelphia had one in 17 AD last week, but this was later. Unlike Philadelphia, they refused any outside help and rebuilt the city completely with their own wealth and resources. 
Laodicea had a medical school that specialized in a healing eye salve. They also produced glossy black wool for the clothing and the fashion and some carpets. So you could say in modern language, Laodicea was Chase Bank, Mayo Clinic, and Versace Fashion all rolled into one. They were also an early seat for Christianity for many centuries. So here's our first verse. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now, did by the way, when we pray a prayer and we say Amen, do we really know what Amen means? It's a Hebrew word. You're speaking Hebrew, by the way. Dr. Dan. No, not exactly. Wow, is that, where's Don? Come on. <laughs> you started talking and he left. So be it. Okay, it's actually from the Hebrew word, which means true. Amen. So it, when you say amen, you say truly at the end of a prayer. So Jesus identifies himself as the true the Amen, the faithful and true witness. So Jesus is fully trustworthy and reliable. So he's, in other words, he's saying, you can trust me. I'm not going to let you down. I'm not going to turn around and become somebody different later. Maybe that was part of what went on there is people you couldn't count on. But he's saying, I'm trustworthy. And then he identifies himself as the ruler of God's creation. And so Colleen, I put the slides out of order. This, Okay, so. Looks like Yellowstone Park. This is about six miles away from Laodicea in Heriopolis. And so they had a Yellowstone-like thermal pools all over, and that's going to come to play in a minute. But imagine you have spectacular, beautiful kinds of things like Yellowstone Park, and God says, I'm the ruler of creation. He kind of pulls in that, you know, this is a kind of an attractive natural area. But he's saying, I'm the one who made that. I'm the ruler. And so my word has the authority. So he's saying, you can depend on me. I'm true. I'm reliable. And I have the authority. So you need to listen because it's for your own good. Verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Now I know. Your version probably says spit, or if you have a King James, says spew. That's because we like to write nice things in the Bible, and there are a few places that the language is a little rough, and maybe you don't like the word vomit, because spitting something out and vomiting it out are really not the same thing. If you are vomiting, you know the difference. You wish it was only the other. But the word in Greek is vomit, and so... And not a real great image before lunch, but I think it's important because the difference is, isn't God just says, oh, that doesn't taste good. It makes God sick when it's saying it makes him vomit. Jesus offers no praise for the church of Laodicea, just like in Sardis a couple of weeks ago. No mention of a faithful remnant. Their deeds are neither hot nor cold. Now, for many decades, and probably you've heard this, is that God would rather we're either on fire for him or we just 
are coldly rejecting and we, we don't want him. He doesn't want the middle ground, the lukewarm. Well, maybe, but does it make sense to say God would just as soon have somebody coldly rejecting rather than just kind of thinking they're partly there but not all the way there? And so I like this explanation because it deals with the area, and I think when we're interpreting Scripture, we need to really look at uh, what did it mean to the people who read it in that era and look at the surroundings of who Laodicea is. I've already showed you kind of Yellowstone stuff. So guess where their hot water might come from? Okay, so it comes from this uh, pamaluke is what the Turkish word is for it. And, and so here's all these spectacular pools, some of which, you know, if I had other pictures that, that show people in those. So they're not boiling hot. They're not the boiling mud pits of Yellowstone or some of them. But, you know, so here's this water, and so they bring it in, but it goes like seven miles away, and by the time it gets to, to Laodicea, it's lukewarm and probably, you know, sulfury to boot. So they have warm water, but it's hot, nice, wonderful bathing water, but it's not so great by the time it gets there because this is not like a place where it's hot all the time. Turkey gets snow and such in Istanbul and things like that. So, you know, when you have a lukewarm bath, it's a cold, you've been outside working out in the field or out recreating and you come back and and your muscles are tired and you get into one of those lovely little tepid, lukewarm, you know. It's like one of the best things after I've cross-crunchy skied, I love to have a hot shower because I don't own a hot tub, which would be even better. But So it's really nice. And, you know, lukewarm water doesn't feel so good. On the other hand, then there was Colossae, which was a different direction. And you can see that on the map there. It's kind of up toward that mountain. And so uh, the water's flowing downhill. The cool, cold water from the mountain that came through Colossae was refreshing and pure in in Colossae, but it was useful for drinking. But on the 10-mile flow into Laodicea, especially in summer, it gets warm and tainted. So Laodicea's lukewarm water wasn't real great for drinking, wasn't so great for bathing, and so it's kind of useless is what the point maybe is in this. So God is saying, I would rather you were good and useful, either hot water that's useful, cold water that's useful, but when you're kind of in between and you're neither, Laodicea's lukewarm water wasn't useful and neither was their lukewarm spirituality. And what is lukewarm spirituality? It's kind of when we're complacent. It lacks heart. It's more outward motion than inward worship. And some of these people may not have been believers at all. They may think they're believers. You ever notice that it might be possible for someone to go to church every week and not be a Christian? Josh McDowell would say, you know, going into a garage doesn't make you a car. Why do you think going into a church would make you a Christian? You got to have something happen in here. Maybe it hadn't happened, but you know, when you go and get those favorite things that you do or, or take your children, they like it even better is a shot of vaccination, right? What is an immunization? See, if you can, don't like that image, think of the crocodiles instead. So, 
So here we get this shot. I got mine not too long ago, a flu shot. And what they do is they put a little bit of either the dead virus or a synthetic version of the virus, just a little bit, and it makes your immune system activated to build antibodies. And so the image is this. Imagine you get a little tiny bit of the real disease so you are immune when the real thing happens. So what if we got Jesus shots just enough when we come to church, just enough to think we really have him and it only vaccinates us from the real disease of spiritual passion and sold out for Jesus. And so these people in Laodicea, in a way, it's deceptive because people come to church thinking this is what they're supposed to do, but they aren't really growing spiritually because there's not a lot there in their hearts at least. They never seek Jesus fully. Ray Stedman, I quoted him last week a lot for the Philadelphia. Here's what he says about Laodicea Church. Instead of being salt and light for the world, reaching out to others and meeting people's needs, they became a private lodge whose only aim is the pleasure of its members. They have just enough truth to numb the conscience without becoming fanatics. You could attend this church for years and might even be enjoyable, but you would not be challenged, you would not be corrected, only pacified because this is the comfortable church. Does that feel a little too close to home for American churches? You feel some of that, well, wow, could that be? But would we even dare to entertain a thought that some of that could be true about us? Maybe not the whole thing, but could it be true about you or our church that we get comfortable? We just want to have everybody feel good, but we never really challenge or correct or do some of the hard things, the salt and light that Ray Stedman mentioned. And so now that's Jesus' response. You kind of have look like you have Jesus, but you really don't have him, but it immunizes everybody around you thinking that they have it and they don't. And God says, that makes me sick. It isn't just, oh, that didn't taste good. He's sickened by the fact when we look like Christians, but we really don't act like Christians. And I've mentioned before, there have been surveys that across the evangelical world, our behaviors don't look that much different than the world's in ethics, in morals, not just, okay, so we might have nice houses and cars. That's not what they're talking about. Behaviors, character issues, evangelicals aren't faring much better than the world. So what does that say if we're claiming that we're going to church? False spirituality sickens God. And so if this is truly a picture of the Western church, affluent and self-centered, but spiritually shallow, would you say it's fair picture? Would any of it have slipped into us? See, God doesn't want partial commitment because it gives a distorted picture of who he is. The New Testament doesn't offer an option of love Jesus, be passionately sold out to him, give your life for him, or don't love and be against him. And Or if you like the middle ground where you kind of like Jesus, but not too much, it doesn't offer that middle ground. It doesn't offer a lukewarm option if you don't think it's a little too hot. So number one on your outline, spiritual complacency equals spiritual uselessness. That's how God's saying. If he's vomiting it out, it's of no use because it may even do more damage 
a hospital discovered that their firefighting system was never connected to the city's water main. Can you imagine? They had the latest state-of-the-art hoses and, and, you know, all the stations, everything was monitored and it was all great, but they discovered the pipe went down three feet and stopped and never hooked up to the city water supply. It doesn't matter how great and how polished and how new and state-of-the-art it is and how costly, it lacked the thing it needed most, water. Lukewarm Christianity has the outward look of spirituality without being connected to the real Jesus. Think about that. We could come and not really be connected into the heart of Jesus because it doesn't change lives. That disturbing verse in Matthew 7, verse 22, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, I'm not talking about if you kind of have made mistakes or saying, I haven't walked with God, how do I know I lost my salvation or something. I'm talking about uh, somebody where you you don't live a sold-out life for Jesus over a long period of time. Not just I'm struggling, but I'm happy, I'm content, I'm complacent, I can just coast on into heaven. That's what we're talking about. So what's your spiritual temperature? And ask yourself, what has God worked on in your heart lately? Could you say, yeah, I've been praying a lot and God showed me some things and I'm working on this thing in my life. Do you have something like that you could name? Or it's just like, no, we're fine. You know, God talked to me 20, 30 years ago to get rid of a few outward habits. But what's been going on recently? Because that might be an indicator. If God and you have nothing to talk about, what does that say? Verse 17 says, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize, Jesus answers, that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Laodicea didn't see themselves as lukewarm. They didn't see themselves as useless. They they weren't in touch with this. They were blind to it. They said, look, we're rich, we don't need a thing. Maybe they thought, we are so blessed by God. Because look, look how much money and possessions we have. We rebuilt our town 30 years earlier, all with our own resources. Look at us. We don't need anyone or anything. But God says, you're not seeing. You're not seeing the danger. A danger of being affluent and self-sufficient is you stop depending on God. God's perspective is that they are actually wretched on the inside. They are pitiful. That means they, you are in desperate need of help and you don't even realize it. He said that you're poor. Now he's telling a bunch of rich people who are a banking center in Asia Minor, you are poor. You're spiritually bankrupt. And they're blind in a place where there's eye self. Their life view was shrouded in fog they couldn't see. And they're spiritually naked. You notice how these fit their industries, by the way? The rich, your eye self that they were famous for, and the black wool, remember? Their Versace kind of thing. He's saying, you are spiritually naked. You think you're all dressed up nice, but inside you're spiritually naked. They were so self-sufficient that they didn't even see the spiritual need that they needed God desperately. 
And so don't look at your outward circumstances in negative and say, God's against me. But don't look at them positive and say, oh, that must be God's blessing. Because that isn't always how it works, is it? Because if that's true, then, you know, God is blessing the West and he must hate Africa because they sure don't have the stuff we have. Or Haiti or the Caribbean or Asia, some of these poor places where, oh, by the way, the Spirit of God is powerfully at work and churches are multiplying. So somehow that you have money might be more of a curse for our culture. I'll speak to that in a minute. So God says, you have problems. In verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. God's solution is three things that they need the most, and as you probably figured out, these mirror their three major industries. First, they need refined spiritual gold from God's bank. A spiritual gold, not, you got plenty of the other gold, but it's keeping you from realizing your neediness, so you need my gold, the gold of the soul, of the heart, spiritually refined, a purified faith that's an authentic relationship of trust and dependence on God and not just saying, you know, oh, look at me, I'm going through the motions. So you need God's spiritual goal, not depending on your own resources. So let me pause and ask, what resources do you depend on? When you really look at it and you think about, this is what makes my life good, this is what I'm depending on. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a nice house or have a good retirement and all that, but you know, it could be gone like that, couldn't it? All of the things that we have, our possessions, our money, I mean, one bad medical illness not covered by your health insurance and you could be bankrupt. So we are at God's dependence. So it's not wrong to have retirements and savings, but when we depend on that, or you say, but, you know, I have a great job and a great position. I'm able to get a job real easy because I have these talents and these skills. But what happens if you couldn't get those jobs? What if that job got phased out? What if your skills were dependent on some physical abilities that you then lost because of health or some other accident? So what do you depend on? Your connections, your family, your people that support you, but they can come and go. Second, he says you need white clothes. In contrast to their famous black wool, Jesus' wool, Jesus' spiritual clothes are are white. Again, that sign of of purity, a purified faith that's refined in gold, and now white clothes. Say, but but look, I have a lot of good things that I've done for the Lord. Isaiah 64 says this in trying to win God's approval. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We need Jesus' clothes. So are you depending on your own good works, your own good character? to live your spiritual life because Galatians 4 has some advice for you that you don't start by faith and then continue by works. It's all a faith walk. And out of that flow the good works and the good character. But the heart is a relationship with Jesus. So third, they need spiritual eye salve so they can look and see the real world. Their spiritual blindness isn't going to be cured by the ointment that's made in their city. They need God's spiritual eyes to help see the real world, like 2 Corinthians 
4 talks about is that there's a whole other world we don't see. So do you look at, at the world, at the eyes around you with your physical eyes to see the tangible things or do you realize there's a whole other reality that I don't see but just as real that God wants to help me walk through? There's a spiritual side. So which eyes do we look through? So number two, self-sufficiency masks our spiritual neediness. When we're self-sufficient, we don't realize that we are spiritually needy. And we're spiritually complacent, we don't realize that we're almost useless or maybe completely useless. Western culture has taught us to be self-sufficient. These are cultural values, especially in the West. We're supposed to hide our own weaknesses. You know, you ever notice that for us guys, you know, we can get angry and this is okay and this is culturally acceptable, but if we cry, somebody's like, you know, oh, oh, don't let me look. But it's the other way around for women. You know, you can cry and everybody's sad, ah, that's a woman, they're crying. But when a woman gets angry, no, that's just not right. You ever notice how we have it all messed up? Do you find that in the Psalms? Because I read David crying and expressing and exuberant and dancing all over the emotional map. And yet we think that if we have emotions, we're supposed to stuff them down because that's the way it was handed down to us from our heritage. Not saying it's all bad. Self-sufficiency is good. But what happens when it leads you like Laodicea? What happens when it leads you to not really trust God and seek him? because you think it's about trying harder. So our culture taught us these things, but these cultural values could be our spiritual and emotional downfall. God's alternative strategy is faith-based, trust-based, and it uses your mind and your emotions and your will, not just one of those or two of them. Now, some verses that you might have heard before in Revelation 3, 19 and 20. God says, those whom I love, I correct and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So in a church letter with no positive affirmation, Jesus makes this heartfelt invitation to relationship. Do you hear it? Do you see it? Look how much they've depended on themselves, but he's not saying, I give up. You make me sick to my stomach. Get away. I'm going to vomit you and walk away. He's saying, no, I still want to have a relationship with you. No positive affirmation, and yet here's this invitation. And it involves correction and discipline. And by the way, when God disciplines you, don't tell everybody, God's picking on me. God's mad at me. He keeps letting me, making me go through all this stuff. That's not what God's saying. You know, look in Hebrews, and it talks about those whom God loves, he disciplines. And that's true here too. Be earnest and repent means get serious about your spiritual walk. Don't have a foot in the world and a foot in the church. Change your lukewarm direction and seek a more passionate relationship with God that's fully committed and not holding back. Verse 20, one of the most beloved pictures in all of scripture. When people ask for a life verse, I liked, I would quote this one. This is how I came to Jesus. But it may actually apply to some of us who are already believers that are maybe not as fully invested as God wants us to be. 
But either way, I stand at the door and knock. By the way, in which this famous iconic picture that we've seen, our Caucasian Jesus knocking on the door. But you know, there's like in a typical Middle Eastern door, does that thing have a latch on it? They don't have a, no, there's not a latch on it. So they don't have a latch on a lot of these ancient Near East doors. I'm not sure how they know that because the wood would have deteriorated by the time they found it, but who knows. Anyway, but the picture, I love that picture because that means the person on the inside has to open it for you. That means Jesus isn't going to come knocking on the door and go, well, I'm going to just, I'm going to open the door and just walk on in if they won't let me in. Jesus isn't going to push his way in. You have to open it. You have to open the door from your side. He's a gentleman. He won't force the door open. So when you tell Jesus, go away, he'll listen. But don't yell at him when he doesn't show up when you need him because you told him to go away. So Jesus is asking each person to commit. Open that door. And you notice what the verse said? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. What is eat a symbol of but fellowship of a deeper relationship? Again, in the Middle East, if you wanted someone to be your close friend and you showed approval, you shared a meal with them. It was a big, much more of a big deal than it is to us. So Jesus is saying, I want a deeper relationship with you, not just a casual one, not a superficial one, So open the door. If you haven't known Jesus personally, now is the time to open the door. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You just say, Jesus, come in. And you like this verse for evangelism? I love the picture it presents. Just open the door. He's there saying, I want to come into your life. Just let me in. But it may also be a fellowship verse, a discipleship verse. Maybe you've been more lukewarm than you want to admit in your relationship. And Jesus is saying, now is the time to let me into your life fully. You know, that pamphlet from years ago called My Heart, Christ's Home talks about the different houses, rooms in a house and say, well, I let Jesus into the living room, but he can't come into the kitchen because I decide when I eat, how I eat, how much I eat. I don't want him telling me to quit overeating or quit, quit eat, drinking this stuff because it makes me sick. So I keep Jesus out of the kitchen. Well, I have my recreation room, and my recreation's mine. Jesus cannot tell me what I can and can't do with my leisure time. So maybe you have some areas in a closet that you've kept some secrets in, and you don't want Jesus into that area. You want to keep it hidden. Jesus is saying, let me in. Let me into all of your life. He's willing to come in and have a relationship deeper than you can imagine. Finally, verse 21 and 22, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. So here's the final promise of the seven churches to overcomers. You get to sit with Jesus on his throne. Jesus will one day allow us to share in his kingdom reign, his rule over the earth. Did you, you're not going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp in Jesus' kingdom. Doesn't that mean kind of sounds boring to me? I mean, not that I, sorry, Gretchen, I love harp music. We went to the symphony last night and they had harp music in it. It was beautiful. But, you know, I don't want to hear anything all the times. 
Jesus is saying, you are going to be active. You're going to be involved. You are going to be busy and fulfilled, and it's going to be great. You're not going to be bored in heaven, which is the picture we get a lot of times. It kind of sounds boring. He's saying, you're going to rule with me. You're going to reign with me. So number three, relationship with God requires commitment. It's not a social thing. It's not, I do it because my family does it. I was born a Christian. None of these, you know, this isn't why we come to church. We come because we meet God and worship him and we get ready to go serve him during the week. So self-sufficiency, spiritual complacency, and commitment. We don't, do we want to be spiritually useless? Do we want to realize we're needy? And are we willing to commit? The great Shah Abbas of Persia long time ago, delighted in in putting on common clothes and going out into his kingdom and mingling in disguise. So he dressed himself in these tattered, dirty clothes and went down to the furnace room. I guess they stoked it and found a way to channel all the hot air up. And he went down there all dressed kind of dirty and tattered and all this and found the guy that put the, the stuff, the wood or whatever it was, into the furnace. And so They enjoyed each other's company, and the furnace stoker shared his lunch of black bread with his new companion. Didn't have any idea who he was, and this led to many other visits and a deepening friendship. All the while, the furnace stoker never realized who this was. So at last, the Shah reveals his identity, and he says, I will grant you whatever that you want, and I will give you a kingdom to rule. I will make you rich. I will provide you anything that you want, fame. Have you nothing to ask? And the furnace stoker replied this, Yes, my Lord, I understand. But what is this you have done? To leave your glorious palace, to sit with me in this dark place, to eat of my plain food, and to care whether my heart is glad or sorry. Even you can give nothing more precious. On others you may bestow riches, but to me you have given yourself. I only ask that you never withdraw this gift from your, of your friendship. This is what God offers us, the gift of an intimate relationship with him. So what do you want most from God? And be honest with yourself. Do you want most of what God does, what he provides, or who he is? That relationship. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to seek who you are, to realize that we, when sometimes or often in Scripture, the more affluent we are, the less we see our spiritual need, and we learn to depend on our own resources and our own possessions, our own talents. But you say, come to me because we may be a lot more spiritually needy than we realize We may be pitiful. We may be blind and not see how things really are around us. Open our spiritual eyes because we are in relationship with you and take us to the place as individuals and as a church that we are not lukewarm, self-sufficient Laodiceans in any way, not even a little. Help us to walk with you and as a church, embrace your calling for us in this area. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.